Chapter Six of the Story of Red Feather by Edward S. Ellis. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Six, The Muddy Creek Band, The Torch. It was easy for any spectator to interpret the actions and signals of the Sioux warrior who was standing erect on his pony and waving his blanket at some party invisible to the others. After a minute or two, he rested with his blanket trailing beside him while he still held his erect position, and continued gazing earnestly over the prairie. This showed that he was waiting for an answer to his signal. Either there was none, or that which was given was not satisfactory, for up went the blanket once more, and he swung it more vigorously than before, stopping and gazing away again. This time the reply was what was desired, for the warrior dropped as suddenly astride of his horse as though his feet had been knocked from under him, and, wheeling about, he and his companion galloped down the hill to where the others were viewing the cabin. The taunting words which Melville had called through the front window must have convinced the Sioux that the pitcher had gone once too often to the fountain. Redfeather had escaped by a wonderful piece of good fortune when wedged in the window, and had been encouraged to another attempt which ended in his ruin. "'Redfeather,' said Melville, stepping close to the chieftain, who was still peering through one of the windows, the other Sioux will soon be here. Dat so, dat so, replied the Indian, looking around at him and nodding his head several times. What will they do? Instead of replying to this question, the chief seemed to be plunged in thought. He gazed fixedly in the face of the youth, as if uncertain what he ought to answer, and then he walked to the head of the stairs. Wait here, don't come. And without anything more, he went down the steps slowly and without the slightest noise. Melville listened but could hear nothing of his footfalls, though certain that he was moving across the floor. "'I don't like this,' muttered the lad, compressing his lips and shaking his head. "'It makes me uneasy.' He was now in the lower story, where he left his rifle, knife, and tomahawk. He was therefore more fully armed than the youth and, if he chose to play the traitor, there was nothing to prevent it. It seemed to Melville that the coming of the larger party was likely to change whatever plans Redfeather might have formed for befriending him and his sister. What more probable than that he decided to return to his first love? But speculation could go on this way forever and without reaching any result. "'I'll do as I have done all along,' he muttered. I'll trust in heaven, and do the best I can. I'm sure of one thing, he added. Whatever comes, Redfeather won't hurt Dot. He has spared me on her account, and if he turns against me now, he will do what he can to save her. Therefore I'll make use of the little one. Dot had held her peace through these trying moments, but he now called her to him and explained what he wished her to do. It was that she should place herself at the head of the stairs and watch Redfeather. In case he started to open the door or to come up the stairs, she was to tell him. Dot was beginning to understand more clearly than before the situation in which she was placed. The belief that she could be of some use to her brother made her more anxious than ever to do her part. She walked to the head of the stairs and sat down where she could see what went on below. Returning to his place at the window, Melville found enough to interest him without thinking of Red Feather. 
The band from Muddy Creek Country had just arrived, and as nearly as he could judge, there were fully a score, all wild, ugly-looking fellows, eager for mischief. They had just galloped up the hill, where they gathered round the man that had first signalled them, he having ridden forward to meet them. They talked for several minutes, evidently to learn what had taken place in and around the Clarendon cabin. This was soon made clear to them, and then the whole party broke into a series of yells enough to startle the bravest man. At the same time they began riding rapidly back and forth, swinging their rifles over their heads, swaying their bodies first on one side and then on the other, and apparently growing more excited every minute. At first they described short circles on the prairie, and then suddenly extended them so as to pass entirely around the house. The Sioux, as they came in sight of the front of the cabin, were in such a fire range that the youth felt sure he could bring down a warrior at every shot. He was tempted to do so, but restrained himself. He reflected that, though several shots had been fired, no one, so far as he knew, had been hurt on either side, and he had brought his own rifle to his shoulder more than once, but a feather's weight more pressure on the trigger would have discharged it, but he was glad he had not done so. "'I shall not shoot anyone,' he said determinedly, "'until I see it must be done for the sake of Dot or myself. "'I wonder what Redfeather is at.' "'Dot was still sitting at the head of the stairs, "'dividing her attention between Susie her doll and the chieftain. "'Stepping softly toward her, Melville asked, "'What is he doing, Dot?' "'Nothing.' "'Where is he standing?' "'Beside the front window, looking out just like you did a minute ago.' This was reassuring information, and helped to drive away the fear that had troubled the youth ever since the Sioux passed below stairs. "'Mel?' called his sister the next minute. "'I'm awful hungry. Ain't it past dinner-time?' "'I'm afraid there's nothing to eat in the house.' "'I'm awful thirsty, too.' "'I feel a little that way myself, but I don't believe there's anything to eat or drink.' You know, father and mother didn't expect us to stay here, or they would have left something for us. Can't I go downstairs and look? Yes, if you will keep away from the windows and tell Redfeather what you are doing. Hasn't he got eyes that he can see for himself? asked the little one as she hurried down the steps. The chief looked around when he heard the dainty steps, wondering what errand brought her downstairs. Redfeather, said the young lady, "'I'm hungry, ain't you?' "'No, me no hungry,' he answered, his dark face lighting up with pleasure at the sight of the picture of innocence. "'Then you must have eaten an awful big breakfast this morning,' remarked Dot, walking straight to the cupboard in the farther corner of the room, into which Melville had glanced when he first entered the house. "'I know where Mother keeps her jam and nice things.' That she knew where the delicacies were stored, Dot proved the next minute when, to her delight, she found everything that heart, or rather appetite, could wish. There were a jar of currant jam, a pan of cool milk on which a thick crust of yellow cream had formed, three-fourths of a loaf of bread, and an abundance of butter. Good Mrs. Clarendon left them behind because she had an abundance without them. Little did she dream of the good service they were destined to do. Dot uttered such a cry of delight that the chieftain walked toward her, and Melville seized the excuse to hurry below. 
the first thing that struck him was that Redfeather's tomahawk and knife still lay in the corner where he had placed them. He simply held his rifle, which most likely he was ready to use against his own people whenever the necessity arose. "'Well, Dot, you have found the prize,' said her brother, following the chief, who was looking over her shoulder. "'I had no idea that Mother had left anything behind. There's enough for all.' She insisted that the others should partake while she waited, but neither would permit it. No matter how a-hungered either might have been, he enjoyed the sight of seeing her eat tenfold more than in partaking himself. And you may be sure that Dot did ample justice to the rich find. Melville cut a thick slice for her and spread the butter and jam on it, while a portion of the milk was poured into a cup. I never heard of a little girl who could eat a piece of bread well covered with jam or preserves without failing to get most of it on her mouth. Dot Clarendon was no exception to the rule, and before she was through a goodly part of it, the sticky sweet stuff was on her cheeks and nose. When she looked up at the two who were watching her, the sight was so comical that Redfeather did that which I did not believe he had done a dozen times in all his life. He threw back his head and laughed loud. Melville caught the contagion and gave way to his mirth, which was increased by the naive remark of Dot that she couldn't see anything to laugh at. The appetite of the young queen having been satisfied, Melville insisted on Redfeather sharing what was left with him. The Sioux declined at first, but yielded, and the remaining bread and milk furnished them with a grateful and nourishing repast. They did not use all, but saved enough to supply another meal for Dot, whose appetite was sure to make itself felt before many hours passed by. Like most boys of his age in these latter days, Melville Clarendon carried a watch, which showed that it was past three o'clock in the afternoon. This was considerably later than he supposed, and proved that in the rush of incidents time had passed faster than he had suspected. "'What shall I do?' asked the youth, turning to the chief. "'Go up, up,' he replied, pointing to the stairs. "'Watch out. Redfeather, he watch out here.' "'Do you want Dot to stay with you?' asked Melville, pausing on his way up the steps. Leave with Redfeather. He take heap care of papoose. There can be no doubt of that, remarked the brother as he bounded up the stairs, resuming his former station near the window. Looking out with the same care he had shown from the first, he found the Sioux had grown tired of galloping round the house and buildings, or they were plotting some other kind of mischief, for only one of them was in sight. He was seated on his pony on the crest of the hill from which the signals were made to the Muddy Creek warriors. A moment's study of the red men showed that his attention was directed not towards the west, but the north, in the direction of the settlement. "'He is now looking for enemies instead of friends,' was the conclusion of Melville. The truth was, the youth was beginning to wonder why the settlers did not come. If no accident had befallen his parents, they ought to have reached Barwell several hours before— and a gallop of ten miles was only a moderate ride for a party of horsemen eager to strike the marauders a blow. But the fact that they were not yet in sight set the youth speculating as to what the result was likely to be if they did not come at all, or rather if their coming should be delayed until nightfall, for it was not to be supposed that relief would not be sent sooner or later. "'There is only a faint moon tonight,' he reflected, "'and I'm afraid that's against us.' The American Indian prefers to do his mischief in the dark, and, since it would be impossible for the horsemen to conceal their approach, 
they would be likely to suffer in the first collision with the Redmen. But on the other hand, would not the gloom be of help to Redfeather in some scheme doubtless formed to help the children whose friend he had so suddenly become? What the nature of this scheme was, if such existed, Melville could not guess. It might be that it required a bright moon for its success. It may be said that the Sioux chieftain, as he stood beside one of the narrow windows on the lower floor, racked his brain until he hit upon a way of aiding the brother and sister, especially the latter, in their desperate peril. It was a strange plan, indeed, and with all his adroitness he knew the chances were ten to one against its success. But the chief gave no hint to Melville of what was going on in his mind, and the latter could only wait and hope and pray that the same heavenly father who had protected and preserved them thus far would keep them to the end. The youth was in the midst of his speculations over the matter when he fancied he detected a peculiar odor from outside. He could not tell its nature, though he snuffed the air repeatedly. He was alarmed, for he connected it with the silence of the war-party outside. He was on the point of appealing to Redfeather downstairs when its nature flashed upon him. It was smoke! He had hardly reached the decision when a mass of thick vapor rolled in front of the house, so dense and blinding that for the moment it shut from his sight the mounted sentinel on the hill. What was dreaded by the besieged had come at last. The Sioux, aware of the great value of minutes, had resorted to the torch. End of chapter 6